This episode is about slavery. Slavery is the morally abhorrent practice when people are treated as property by law and deprived of most of the rights that individuals hold as free people, and in particular when they're forced to work uh, in barbaric conditions for no remuneration. That is Steve Redding. Steve is an economics professor at Princeton University. He's a trade economist who works with teams on important questions from economic history. On this week's show, Steve and I are going to talk about some brand new research involving the slave trade during Britain's Industrial Revolution. Beginning in the 1500s, 10 million Africans were taken from their homes. Against their will, they were shipped on sailboats across the Atlantic Ocean to the Americas and Caribbean. During those voyages, many got sick and died. The survivors were forced to spend the rest of their lives working unpaid under brutal conditions in the colonies. They were enslaved by Europeans who owned plantations growing things like cotton, tobacco, sugar, and coffee. For hundreds of years, generations of children were then born into this system of suffering in the Americas and Caribbean. For them, there was no escaping slavery. Even though this form of slavery was legally abolished more than 150 years ago, its economic, political, and sociological effects persist today. This episode examines Britain in one especially horrific part of that story, Britain's role in the slave trade, how much the British economy profited from holding slaves, and why identifying those in Britain who benefited from this form of exploitation is needed to fully confront the lasting effects of slavery. Well, there's a lot of evidence that slavery had a negative effect on economic development and society in Africa, but we have much less evidence on its effects on economic development in enslaving countries such as Britain. Therefore, part of our motive is to understand that economic impact and and add to this uh, existing debate. More broadly, much of the case for reparations is based on uh, its inhumane and barbaric conditions. But part of that debate about reparations is understanding the extent to which some countries, in particular enslaving countries, benefited from this horrendous practice. And one of our key contributions is to be able to try to quantify just how big those benefits were, both for local industrial development in Britain and then also for the British economy as a whole. You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade and policy. I'm your host, Chad Bown the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. Hi, Steve. Hi, Chad. Thanks for having me. Slavery dates back at least to ancient times, including to the Roman Empire. The transatlantic slave trade that involves European countries, their colonies, and Africa began in the 1500s. Well, the Portuguese were the first Europeans to buy slaves from the west coast of Africa and transport them across the Atlantic in 1526. Britain's involvement in the slave trade starts in the 1560s with voyages of John Hawkins and Francis Drake, but it really starts to expand in the 1640s onwards following Britain's acquisition of its first American colonies at Jamestown in 1607 and Barbados in 1625. One of the key forces that led to uh, European involvement in the slave trade was the decimation of indigenous populations in the Americas through uh, disease, in particular smallpox, influenza, and a number of different diseases, which meant that there was a scarcity of local labor. 
What is triangular trade when it comes to slavery during this period? So the triangular trade, think of the three legs of the triangle. The first leg runs from Britain to the West African coast. Uh, the second leg runs from the West African coast to the Americas, in particular to the Caribbean. And then the third leg of the triangle runs back from the Caribbean and the Americas to Britain. On the first leg of the triangle, British manufacturing goods were exported to the West African coast, where they were exchanged for slaves from West African traders. And then those slaves were carried across the middle leg, which was referred to as the Middle Passage, in barbaric conditions on slave ships with high rates of mortality and disease to the Caribbean, where they were then sold and exchanged for products produced on plantations, in particular sugar, coffee, tobacco, cotton, uh, which was then transported back from the Americas to Britain. And then the ship or another ship would go around the legs of the triangle again. Who owned the ships involved in this triangular trade, and why is that an important part of the story? Well, the ships were owned by Europeans, and in particular, British-owned ships are the focus of our analysis. In total, around 10 million Africans were transported across the Atlantic. Over the course of our period, 6 million were transported up to 1807, and Britain uh, carried around one-third of those 6 million slaves across the Atlantic. Um, the fact that the ships were owned by Europeans was important because they accumulated great wealth through the slave trade, and many of them used that wealth to transition into slaveholding, into owning plantations in the Caribbean and holding slaves there. And that's important for our story because it's that wealth accumulated through the slave trade that then enables people to transition into slaveholding on plantations. And then in our study, we look at the impact of that wealth that was accumulated uh, from slaveholding on local economic activity and industrial development in Britain. If we turn to the, the latter part of this period where Britain is really heavily involved in the slave trade, so this is the late 1700s, early 1800s, what else is happening at the time in Europe and, and in Britain especially? Well, the key economic development in Britain was the Industrial Revolution, which started around 1760 and refers to a whole set of related technological innovations and industrial developments, uh, which led to the rise of manufacturing industry and uh, reallocation of resources out of agriculture and the movement of people increasingly from the countryside into towns and cities. So the key innovations were the development of what's called the spinning jenny in the textiles industry, uh, which made it more efficient to spin cotton and led uh, to a movement of people from spinning cotton in their homes into large-scale factories. Another key innovation was the development of the steam engine, first invented in 1712, but developed in a series of important improvements by James Watt in the 1760s to 1775 which increased the efficiency of the steam engine and enabled it to be used for rotary motion, which made an important source of power in factories. And so this kind of large-scale economic development and transformation of industry uh, literally transformed uh, the face of Britain uh, and motivated writers such as Charles Dickens to think about uh, the primitive conditions in cities at this time, and also economists such as Adam Smith and David Ricardo thinking about the changes in the world around them and the role of uh, economics and international trade in understanding those developments. The timing here is important. The transatlantic slave trade and the Industrial Revolution, these two incredibly important socioeconomic transformations, took place almost simultaneously. Now, obviously, slavery did not cause the invention of the cotton jenny or the steam engine. But an important question for Britain is whether the profits it enjoyed by enslaving people 
allowed the country to deploy those sorts of inventions more extensively and become richer than it would have otherwise. I asked Steve about the contemporary thinkers and what they believed the impact of the slave trade was on Britain's economy at the time. Well, there's a huge debate in economic history about the role played by the slave trade in Britain's Industrial Revolution and indeed about the reasons for the Industrial Revolution in general. At the time, there was considerable debate about this question whether slavery was profitable for the British economy. Adam Smith considered slavery in the colonial system as economically inefficient. Other people argued that it played a key role in industrial development. For example, Karl Marx argued that the veiled slavery of the wage workers in Europe needed for its pedestal slavery pure and simple in the new world, to quote his own words. Economic historians have had a long-running debate as to whether Britain's involvement in the slave trade and slaveholding contributed to its industrial revolution. A big part of that debate involves a man named Eric Williams. Williams would famously become the first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, helping the Caribbean country gain independence from Britain in 1962. But long before that, Eric Williams was also an incredibly important scholar. Eric Williams was a black economist and economic historian who published an incredibly influential book called Capitalism and Slavery, which advanced two key hypotheses. One of those hypotheses was that Britain accumulated great wealth from the slave trade and slaveholding, and that that helped to finance Britain's industrial revolution. And then the second hypothesis was that slavery was not abolished in Britain from humanitarian reasons, but because over time it became economically less profitable. And so the economics played a key role both in wealth being accumulated and financing in, in the Industrial Revolution, and then it also played a key role in the abolition of slavery. He really framed the debate. A lot of research since then has been really trying to explore and quantify just how important the wealth accumulated from the slave trade and the slave holding was for Britain's Industrial Revolution. Some scholars argue it was relatively unimportant, other scholars emphasized, uh, in particular, the profits not just from the slave trade, but also from slaveholding, that the wealth accumulated from slaveholding was around 10 times bigger than the profits accumulated through the slave trade. But at the end of that debate, at this moment, it's still an open question. By the early 1800s, in Britain, the tide against the slave trade was slowly starting to turn. And in 1807, the British Parliament passed an act for the abolition of the slave trade. Over time, reports of barbaric conditions on slave ships led to increasing political protests against the slave trade. Therefore, in 1807, a Britain abolished trade in slavery, and from that point onwards, it was illegal for British ships to participate in the slave trade. Initially, abolitionists hoped that the end of the slave trade would make slavery itself unsustainable. But unfortunately, that did not come about, and further legislative process was delayed. In 1807, Britain did pass that first law that made trading slaves illegal across its empire. Unfortunately, that was not enough to end Britain's role in slave holding. That took another quarter century. The Slavery Abolition Act 1833 did finally stop the British from holding slaves, and what it took to pass that legislation was both horrific and incredibly important for Steve's research. Well, a key feature of the British situation is that the abolition of slavery was heavily opposed by what was known as the West India Interests, which is primarily slaveholders, owners of plantations in the Caribbean, who, who opposed the abolition of slavery. 
as part of the political economy process to try to get the Abolition of Slavery Act through Parliament, the British government agreed to pay slaveholders uh, compensation for their economic losses as a result of the abolition of slavery. And this is a particularly horrendous feature of the British historical context where instead of the enslaved being compensated, it was actually the enslavers who were compensated by the British government. The amounts of, of money involved were huge. Uh, this corresponded to 40% of British government revenue. It's estimated to be around 5% of British GDP at the time. That's important for our research because as part of these compensation payments, the British government collected detailed data about who held these slaves and how many were held in which plantations on which islands. And in particular, a slavery compensation committee was set up. Slaveholders had to apply to that committee specifying how many slaves they held and the plantations on which they held them. And so the government collected very detailed information about the people who held those slaves, their addresses, the number of people involved, and recorded the total amount of compensation paid uh, to each person. We used that detailed information to locate slaveholders at different places within Britain, and hence track where the wealth was held in different locations within Britain. Again, this 1833 Abolition Act was so awful. Instead of compensating the people who had been enslaved, the act paid huge sums to those in Britain who had been holding and exploiting and benefiting from the slaves. The only good news was that the act also created a long and detailed paper trail. And that paper trail would be pieced together as clues by an incredible group of historians. We're very fortunate because historians at University College London spent around a decade compiling these data into the Legacies of British Slavery database. They started with the records of the Compensation Committee, but then they augmented those records by tracing the involvement, uh, the participation in slavery throughout the British economy. So in particular, for example, they followed genealogical histories back in time. They've connected which slaveholders were also members of parliament, which slaveholders were members of the aristocracy. And one of the really interesting findings uh, from their work and in the data is just how prevalent slaveholding was within the British economy. Not only um, individuals who held very large estates with many enslaved people, but also individuals, widows who inherited enslaved people and might often only have one or two enslaved people that they claimed, uh, but that they received income from. A big part of Steve's project is to build from the Legacies of British Slavery database by combining that information with centuries worth of detailed British economic data. What are going to be the various outcome measures that you're going to be interested in tracking? Well, one of our key contributions in the paper is to put together this extremely rich, spatially disaggregated data set, which combines information on population, employment, property values for individual locations in Britain. And then into that information, which is typically reported for what's known as a parish, a small local area, into those locations, we combine this information on the addresses of slaveholders. Uh, so we match the information on the compensation that was received by individual people living in each of these parishes. We then also combine that information with the Slave Voyages database, which contains information on every single individual voyage of a slave trading ship by um, uh, slave traders worldwide. And we merge information on British slave traders into these parishes. And then we track their ancestors back in time as part of our empirical analysis. So it's an incredibly rich data set that combines local economic activity going all the way back 
to Norman times through to the 19th century, the 1830s, together with information on slaveholding and slave trading back across the centuries. Steve's team has this incredibly precise information on where slave traders and slaveholders were located geographically in Britain. He then compares that with where Britain's industrialization was concentrated during this same period. Slave trading was overwhelmingly concentrated in the three ports of Liverpool in the northwest of Britain, Bristol in the southwest of Britain, and London in the southeast. And Liverpool was by far the most important, accounting for around 49% of British slave trading voyages. And in part because slave trading was often a route into slaveholding, slaveholding is also concentrated and clustered around those three ports. But it also extends throughout England and Wales, particularly in coastal regions and particularly in the main population concentrations in towns and cities. And when we just look at the data, we see a high correlation between the areas that have high levels of economic activity in 1833 and that have high levels of slaveholding wealth uh, in 1833 as measured in our compensation data. So you said correlation. But we're economists and we're, we're not ever happy with correlation we're interested in causation. Why might we be worried that correlation could be mistelling the story here? On the one hand, it's possible that the wealth accumulated through slavery was invested in local industrial activity and helped propel the Industrial Revolution. On the other hand, it could be that local wealth accumulated in Britain was then invested in slaveholding. So in other words, causality could either run from slaveholding to local industrial activity or it could run in the other direction from wealth from local industrial activity into slaveholding. Causation is important because Steve really wants to know how much of Britain's industrial revolution, how much of its economic transformation, how much of its economic growth, how much of it getting rich was being driven by the slave trade and slaveholding and not other important changes taking place in Britain at the same time. You've convinced me establishing causality is important. So how are you going to do that here? Many families started off as slave traders and then transitioned into slaveholding. So we're going to use the idea that while they were slave traders, in the age of sail, the primary determinant of how long voyages would take across the Atlantic was wind conditions. Given the barbaric conditions on slave ships... When voyages took much longer than was expected because of bad wing conditions, uh, water would rapidly begin to run out and infectious diseases would begin to spread, uh, which would lead to high levels of mortality among the enslaved. While many voyages experienced mortality rates of 5 to 10%, some saw rates of 20% or more. So the idea is some slave traders were lucky in the sense that they faced favorable wing conditions and their passage across the Atlantic was quick, and that meant that fewer enslaved people on the ship perished, and that meant that they received more wealth from that slave trading voyage. In contrast, some other slave traders were unlucky in the sense that they faced unfavorable wind conditions. The voyage across the Atlantic took much longer, and therefore many more enslaved people died, which reduced the wealth that they accumulated from that slave trading voyage. The key idea is that those wind conditions are completely unrelated to local economic activity in Britain or to the entrepreneurial ability of the individual slave trader. Those wind conditions are completely beyond their control. So that's your setup. What do you find? We find that in locations with more wealth from slaveholding for weather-related reasons, there's higher manufacturing employment, lower agricultural employment, 
more cotton mills, more steam engines, higher property values, and higher population density. These are all key measures of industrial development. Britain's involvement in the slave trade really was a causal contributor to its industrial revolution. Steve has this evidence at the local level, at the level of all these little parishes, how much some parishes grew, how much others did not, that can be traced back to their slave holdings. When you aggregate that up to look at Britain as a whole, what do you find? We find that the wealth accumulated from slaveholding increased Britain's national income by around 3.5% each year. That's large relative to rates of economic growth at the time. For example, that corresponds to more than a decade of growth in income per capita at the time. How about when you look at different regions? We find that the wealth accumulated from slaveholding played an important role in shaping the geography of industrial activity in Britain. In particular, the areas that had the most slaveholding wealth, so think of the areas around Liverpool, London, and Bristol, experienced increases in total income of around 40%, uh, increases in the income of capital owners of factories and buildings of more than 100%, and a reduction in the income of landowners of around 7%. Within Britain, slavery also had important distributional consequences. Again, the slaves were located far away in the colonies and not in England or Wales. But beyond the slaveholders themselves, some British individuals benefited indirectly from the system of slaveholding. We find large-scale distributional consequences. Capital owners were the main beneficiaries. That is, people who own machinery and buildings employed in manufacturing and industrial activity. We find at the aggregate level, there's an 11% increase each year in the income of capital owners. And that's not only slaveholders, but that's all owners of capital, of machines and factories. In contrast, the main losers were the owners of land, who experienced a small reduction in their income of around 1% each year as economic activity was reallocated away from agriculture towards manufacturing and industry. But of course, these are only the people who suffered economically in Britain. It's impossible to compare those economic losses to the extreme suffering of those who were enslaved, of those who perished on slave ships as they were transported across the Atlantic, and those who survived and who suffered and experienced inhumane and barbaric conditions on colonial plantations in the Americas. So we have this linkage between slave trading and slave holding and this industrial development in, in Britain during this time period. What do you think is the main channel through which that was able to arise? Key feature of economic activity at this time is that financial markets were not very highly developed. Therefore, this wealth accumulated from slaveholding could be invested in buildings and machines, and that manufacturing was the main industry in which those buildings and machines were used. So greater wealth accumulated from slaveholding led to more investment in buildings and factories and a larger expansion in industry and manufacturing. British ships were responsible for roughly a third of the slaves traded across the Atlantic. But there were at least 4 million Africans that other countries shipped as slaves to the Americans and Caribbean during the same period. I asked Steve who shipped those slaves and whether those countries similarly benefited from the wealth that their slave traders were accumulating 
and reinvesting back at home. The Portuguese were the first Europeans to become involved in the slave trade, and they were quantitatively extremely important. Also, in addition to the Portuguese and the British, France and Spain also participated heavily in the slave trade. Of course, our findings focus on slaveholding in Britain, but I think they have important implications for other countries involved in the slave trade and slaveholding. In particular, the wealth that was accumulated from slaveholding could affect local economic activity in those countries as well. One of the challenges is that we only have this really detailed, disaggregated data on wealth obtained through slaveholding for Britain as a result of the feature of the Abolition of Slavery Act. In other countries, it's much harder to obtain the same kinds of data, but um, an important area for further research is trying to explore in other countries whether the same mechanism that wealth accumulated from slaveholding affects local economic activity also extends to those other settings. You've convinced us that Britain's involvement in the slave trade and slave holding helped further advance its industrial revolution and its economic growth. Stepping back from all this, what do you think are the primary implications of these results? I think it's important for Britain and other European countries, such as Portugal, Spain, and France, that participated in the slave trade and slave holding to acknowledge the wealth that was accumulated from this barbaric and horrific practice. I think our findings are also relevant for the debate about reparations. Uh, much of that debate is about the suffering that was experienced from those who were enslaved and those who perished as a result of the slave trade and slaveholding. Uh, but as part of that debate, it's important to understand how much enslaving countries benefited from this horrific and inhumane practice. Steve, thank you very much. Thanks, Chad, for having me. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Steve Redding at Princeton University. Do check out his new paper with Stefan Heblich and Hans-Joachim Voth, titled Slavery and the British Industrial Revolution. You can find links to that paper, as well as some of the other research that Steve mentioned in the show notes on the Trade Talks website. This is such an incredibly important topic. We will hope to cover some other aspects in future episodes. Thanks to Melina Kalb, our supervising producer. And thanks, as always, to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. We're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. 